Ruth Weiss is the recently retired professor of Yiddish and Comparative Literature at Harvard University, currently a distinguished senior fellow at the Tikva Fund. Ruth is known for what she calls moral self-confidence. Ruth was top on my list of guests from the start of this podcast, and it took time and patience to get her on. She recently released a new memoir, Free as a Jew. I had a remote conversation with Ruth, where we discussed the role of the Holocaust in Jewish identity, why some Jews are anti-Zionist, how to combat Palestinian propaganda, American Jews, Israeli Jews, Jews and power, the Iran deal, Yiddish writers, Chabad on campus, and much more. I'm Barack Holman, the author of Figured Out When You Get There, a memoir of stories about living life first and watching how everything falls into place, and a shtickel shalom, a student, his mentor, and their unconventional conversations. And this is Jewish People and Ideas, a podcast of conversations with Jewish thought leaders about contemporary Jewish topics. This was a remote interview done on Zoom. As a result, the audio on Ruth's end is not the highest quality. I did my best to clean it up. The content is great. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. We're starting off where I'm sure everybody else is starting off with the title of your book, Free as a Jew. So the question I wanted to ask you originally was, what does it mean to be free as a Jew? But really, what I want to know is, is there anyone who's not free as a Jew? (laughs) Well, that I can't answer. I'm. You know, I have trouble enough answering for myself, not for others. But um, I think the book surprised me in a way because it's only in the course of writing it that you realize what really made of. So the title came to me after trying out many, many others, partly because I realized how central the idea of freedom, as it's revealed to me through Pesach, through the Haggadah particularly, how central that is to me. In other words, freedom is extraordinarily important to me. I I mean, it's a real value. I'm not a libertarian, but um, I don't like constraints. But the question is, freedom, as a Jew understands it, is the freedom to assume responsibility. And that's very different from freeing oneself of certain things, you know, to be liberated from various things. That's not what free as a Jew means. To be free as a Jew means to be free to um, engage in the national self-liberation of the Jewish people and also to accept the commandments, to to accept the civilizing process of what uh, freedom entails. In other words, you're not free to uh, escape your responsibilities. You're free to assume them. You know, we're in the book now of of Sefer Shmot. We're just about to start it now, which is basically the story of our national liberation. Quite, exactly. Well, we tell it in very many ways. And uh, the way we were raised, I was raised much more within the national framework of the Jewish people than I was within a strictly religious tradition of Judaism as a religion. So that idea of being part of a people that has experienced this and reenacted this so many times in history um, is, is a very, you know, very profound. And I've come to, uh, you know, it, with every passing year, I come to understand it, its importance, not just for us as a people, but I wish we could also explain its importance to others and persuade others of its importance much more than we do. I learned from you listening to your talks 
the difference between the U.S. Holocaust Museum and Yad Vashem. So the U.S. Holocaust Museum, which I haven't personally been to, but my mother and my daughter were there together. And I asked them, when you finish, what happens? They said, you walk out into the National Plaza and you go to the Smithsonian. You go to the next museum. And what's the message that you get from the the museum? That the Jews are victims. Whereas Yad Vashem, you walk out and you see the Jewish answer to the Holocaust, the living state of Israel. So the first question is, why did the Jews of America, who were given the opportunity to build a museum in the National Plaza, choose to build something that really isn't what we're about? It was something that was done to us, but doesn't define us. Well, look, we can't be ahistorical here. That's not the way it worked out. That's not the way it happened. It happened because at a certain point, many survivors wanted their story told. And Elie Wiesel was a very important force in this. Uh, He was saying, you know, we have to remember, we have to tell the story. And and they meant something by it. Now, at the same time, uh, this idea of building a memorial to the Holocaust on the Mall. It, it just came up as an idea. And at first, Jimmy Carter was very much against it, but then he became for it. And that should have made people suspicious, <laughs> right? But it didn't. And you see that he saw that, hey, there was nothing wrong with telling the story of the Holocaust because this would be a story that is very Christological. He saw it as what it in fact became the idea that to tell the story of as Jesus on the cross, but the Jewish people on the cross could be redemptive. And, and to be honest, that is the way Christians tend to see the world in a way. When you go into a church, you know, what's there is not the Sefer Torah that stands for you, but it is a, a, a Jesus on the cross. And he suffered for your sake. And the whole understanding of what redemption means is quite different. And so, in a way, the museum was created in that image, I think. I'll I'll put it at its best. I mean, they thought they were doing the best thing possible to show you this redemptive possibility of suffering, if you will, extreme suffering. And they thought that if you show this thing, it'd never do it again. Now, I saw it differently from the very beginning, but I have to say that is how people saw it. It wasn't a Jewish choice between this or that. It was just that is the way it happened. They never thought of doing anything else. They never thought of erecting a uh, same museum according to how, I'll get back to this, to the Pesach story. In other words, if they had erected the same museum from a Jewish point of view, how would it have been constructed? It would have been constructed starting with the destruction of the Jewish people And then before midpoint, it would tell you how in that same decade of the 1940s, the Jews actually reclaimed their sovereignty in the land of Israel, which had been under foreign occupation for two millennia. Now that story, wow. I mean, and that's still, I think, that's my hope that someday this museum, if it's still there, will be changed. That whole second part so that when you ask your family, what did you see? Well, they will be able to tell you that what we did is we went from slavery to, uh, to self-liberation, that we experienced it because that's what the story would show. 
that the infrastructure was already there, that the Jews were already in Palestine, that they had realized much earlier that they would have to really reclaim their national sovereignty the same way that Italy was becoming, you know, many, many nations were coming into being. Mm -hmm. And Zionism took its example from many other nations. So that's the story that the Holocaust Museum would, and it, then it would have be called. It would be called something else. It would be called the Museum of of um, of Destruction and Redemption. But redemption, self redemption, right? Right. Not asking anyone else to do this for us. So, if you were able to redesign the last room at the Holocaust Museum, what would the last room look like? Well, it would look like when you get out of Yad Vashem. <laughs> it would just be able, one might even take a, a, uh, a picture of that and somehow, you know, or a video of that and show you what it feels like to walk out of Yad Vashem and to be in Yerushalayim. Habnuya. <laughs> it, it is an amazing experience in Israel to go through that. And there it makes that kind of sense. It makes that kind of sense. Now, I, I want to be... I don't want, you know, it's so easy to be misunderstood. The Jews, of course, have to commemorate, and they'll never stop commemorating and remembering the dead, the murdered Jews of Europe, and the murdered civilization of the Jews of Europe. That's number one. So we still mourn the temples. We are not in danger of forgetting the murdered Jews of Europe as a people. Secondly, I think that the keeping the historical record part of the Holocaust Museum, let may I say, is extremely important because they really do, uh, same way that Yad Vashem does, you know, they do historical research and they don't, you know, they know that every single thing has to be verifiable. Everything that the Germans tried to erase, that history will try to erase, you have to keep that. So that's a second function. But what we were talking about is the presentation of this. What do you do with this history? So I want to make sure that when that story is told, it is told as the story as of all the miracles that the Jewish people performed and witnessed in history, that is the greatest. In the same decade that you lose under the most terrifying conditions, a third of your people, you are able to reclaim your sovereignty after you know millennia when so many had thought that it could never actually happen, that it would have to wait until God's intervention. So that's the story that I would want told. Right. The, the last part of what you said is what's missing, that we have yes. the destruction, but we don't have what comes after. Exactly. You have a unique definition of antisemitism. This, I've only, only ever heard it coming from you, that antisemitism is the organized politics against the Jews. Organize grievance against the Jews. You want to know what's wrong? It's the Jews. As opposed to anti-Judaism, which came before anti-Semitism, and now there's anti-Zionism, which you say is worse than the previous two because it denies the Jewish people a legitimate right to their homeland. So why would Jews be anti-Zionist? Uh, well, um, you know, I wrote this book called Jews and Power, which in Hebrew, it's translated into Hebrew, and in Hebrew, its title is... Um, Paradox Hapolitika Hayehudit. Oh, wow. Which is a much better title, by the way, uh, much more accurate about the book. The Paradox of Jewish Politics. Well, 
I wrote the book because that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to explain what you describe, why I, um, why I think anti-Semitism is a product uh, of the 19th century. And it, by the way, that distinction that you attribute to me, it's true. I don't know anyone else who defines it as the organization of politics against the Jews. But I use anti-Semitism the way it was created. So it was a movement that was actually created by that name in the 19th century, which people tend to forget. Wilhelm Marr, uh, in the 1870s in Germany, did not like liberalism, did not like what was happening in Germany. He was very afraid of modernity, of various things that were happening, Dem democratic forces. He was afraid that this would change Germany, would change everything. So he invented this thing called anti-Semitism, where he differentiated it from Judaism. He said, we're not like the church who are against the Jews who think that they Jesus. That's superstition. He didn't have no place for that. No, he wanted to organize politics against the Jews. They were the force that was corrupting Germany from within. And he said, and it's written, I mean, this is what he wrote. It's so brilliantly uh, described by him. He said, the Jews do not have to come with the sword. They don't have to come with an army to defeat us. They defeat us from within. You see how it looked like to him. It looked to him as if liberalism was a Jewish conception, a Jewish invention, that that's why the Jews were becoming all the lawyers. They were becoming all the doctors. They were becoming the journalists. They were taking over the culture. They were taking over everything. So he saw this as an encroaching danger, which he called the Jews. He attributed to the Jews because in Vienna and in parts of, by the way, Vienna is where the first Jew, excuse me, where the first anti-Semite was actually elected on a platform of anti-Semitism. Hmm. The, the mayor of Vienna, Leger, was elected on the first, first politician uh, long before Hitler to be elected on a platform of anti-Semitism because it made so much sense. You see, you could point to the Jews. If I tell you it's liberalism or, you know, that's an abstraction. But if I really tell you that it's the Jews, they, they, they are doing this. They stand for this. They're representing it. And, and, and then, of course, they invert everything because they hold the Jews responsible for what is actually the aggression against them. You see, what they're blaming the Jews for is actually their aggression, not the Jews. Of course, you understand that the Jews of Germany and Austria and Europe were in no way eager to conquer the continent or to conquer Germany, right? What they wanted to do is to prove what great citizens they were, what great contributions they could make. That was their idea. But from the point of view of the Germans, what does it mean to make contributions to us? You're not really making contributions. You're really gaining, gaining the power over us. So the whole democratic and liberal process was described as a plot by the Jews, you see, to take us over. And, um, and this spread like wildfire across other parts of Europe. And in each country, it took on a different form. So how do we have people now that are anti their own identity, in a sense, well, anti the state of Israel when they're Jews. I understand. But you, you see, 
I understand. But I think that, again, here, if you look at things politically, I could tell you that there is actually, you can you could almost say it scientifically, that there's a, a principle that exists always. The greater the degree of enmity against the Jews, the greater this organization of politics against the Jews, the more ferocious it is, the more widespread it is, the cleverer it is, the more Jews will begin to hold themselves or their fellow Jews responsible for that aggression against them. So I would say that there is a ratio here. You can almost plot it. You see, I don't do these statistical analyses, but I'm sure I, w- I bet my life on the fact that you could find this correlation. There were no anti-Zionists in the 25 years after the creation of the state of Israel because Israel was a very popular le- uh, liberal idea and liberals were for Israel. But after 1975, with increasing energy as the Arab war against Israel began to penetrate the United States, and as Palestinians and pro-Palestinians began to make the argument against Israel and against, and as anti-Semitism began to be anti-Zionism, the organization of politics against the Jews, now not in dispersion, but now in the land of Israel, the more this accumulated, the more Jews began to say, hey, as they said in the 19th century, if only the Jews would shave their beards, and if only they would dress like others, and if only they would talk like others, there would be no anti-Semitism. So instead of saying that, they now say, if only Israel would pull back to these borders, if only Israel would do this for the Palestinians, if only is going to be the response of a great many Jews, depending on how intense the war against them becomes. America, I mean, you now have on campuses, I mean, it's escalated dramatically. And now for the first time in the United States of America, you never had this before. You have people who espouse anti-Semitism, who are electable to office. Anti-Semitism or anti-Zionism? Well, anti-Zionism is now the, the... Anti-Zionism is now the form that anti-Semitism takes, just as Wilhelm Marr made this distinction between anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism in his time. So the thing has changed now. Anti-Zionism is, of course, anti-Semitism. Where are most of the Jews today? They're not in the rest of the world. They are concentrated in Israel. So to be anti-Semitic now, and Israel represents in the world, exactly what the Jews represented in Europe a century ago. They represent the same forces, you see, of liberal, democratic, self-accountable civilization, of, a, of, a, of all the things that we think are positive, a can-do nation, a, a uh, startup nation, a people that does not want to impose itself on others, but always accepts the principle of coexistence that seems to be able to succeed at everything because it is so energetic and so this and that. That's what they hold against us because it requires a great deal of self-discipline. You know, it doesn't come overnight. You know what it's like to be an Israeli. Oh, yes. So you understand that it's very yeah. different. Yeah. 
instead of saying we can be like that, we can do it too. People who are in a totally different place in their own cultural development look at that and they say, I hate it. I'm afraid of it. So the grievance and the blame grow. And the greater it becomes, the more Jews say, who, me? It couldn't be me. It must be that bad Jew over there that they're against, because it's not me. Mm -hmm. So I would just say it's very sad, but it's a, unfortunately, it's the way it has always been. You know, during the Inquisition, it was the same. And by the way, at the end of the 19th century, as anti-Semitism began, so did the number of conversions. There were thousands of Jews who converted to Christianity because then it was not like America where you could just become an indistinguishable American. You don't have to convert in America, right? In Europe, you still had to convert in order to become like them. So you had tens of thousands of conversions. Today, you have tens of thousands of conversions of a different kind. Got it. That's very clever. I don't want to. I want to be. It's a very deep understanding of it that isn't something that's easily understood. Exactly. It that puts deep. things in perspective. Exactly. Told you I'm a fan of many of your talks. You talk about how Jews should defend themselves on campus. And you say you never defend Israel. You always attack, attack, attack. We should never be defendants. We have to be the prosecutors and make the other side defend themselves. So what I learned from you was to take this as a call to action. And I actually, just as a hobby, spent three years listening to every debate, all the Palestinian propaganda I could find, and came up with an answer to every question and claim that they have. So I'll give you an example of one. You know, first of all, the Palestinian claim is very simple to argue. You just say, you stole our land, give it back. You're a thief. It's really Rashi. It's Rashi from the first explanation in the Torah. It's amazing. You're a bunch of thieves. You stole our land. Give it back. So how do you answer them? They're Sai Barakat, you know, the late Sai Barakat, who, was, who used to be the chief Palestinian propagandist or a negotiator. So he once sat at Oxford University and said, my claim to the land of Palestine is that I'm a proud son of the Canaanites. I go back 10,000 years and the Jews murdered my people. And I'm a proud descendant of them. So my answer to him, based on what I learned from you, is that I'm a proud Jew, and I'm a proud descendant of the ancient Jews. And I can tell you all the names of the kings of Israel. I can do it in Hebrew. I can do it in the land of Israel. I practice the same religion as them. And if you're a descendant of the Canaanites, so you tell me the names of the Canaanite kings. You do it in Canaanite, and tell me, how do you practice the Canaanite religion? Well... That I learned from you, but you should know. <laughs> well, I'm very uh, honored. I'm uh, very honored. Uh, well, but obviously you did it all on your own. Um, but there's something very interesting about what you're telling me and what you're explaining here. So those things are, are very important to know. It's very important to know what the answers would be if you had to answer. But you see what you're doing is you're still answering. That's you would say I'm not defensive, but that's not attacking. What I mean is something very different. We are in a very complex situation. We have no incentive to attack others. Understand? All we want, all we need, and sometimes desperately need, is to be accepted by others. We need them to accept the principle of coexistence. 
and they do not accept the principle of coexistence. The minute we say what they say to us, I will answer this, that's already on the defensive. My idea is much different. You see, had we known what to do on the first day after November 29th, 1947, when the Arabs refused to accept the principle of coexistence, that's when we should have begun a drumbeat which never stopped from that day to this. What do you mean? You cannot defy the United Nations based on the principle of coexistence. And if you do not accept the principle of coexistence, the United Nations has to throw you out. You cannot be a member of the community of nations if you do not accept the principle of coexistence. And from that day to this, we are said, we're not going to even talk about anything until you give unconditional acceptance of the state of Israel as the state of the Jewish people. I don't want to talk about anything else. You have no right to ask us anything. You have no right to make any demands. You have no right to do anything. You don't even have a right to be a member of the United Nations if you did not accept this principle. Can you see us doing that even today? Of course not. We've fallen farther and farther behind. Hmm. We never made a demand. We never made the demand, which is so elementary that once you point it out, you know, everybody sees it. I mean, how can these nations, you know, the, the, the Arab League consolidated against the Jewish people? You had nation, after, you know, they have 640 times more land than the Jews. They have, I don't know how many more people, you know, demographically than the Jews. They have everything. What the heck do they want? They needed what they needed was something to be against. That's what they needed more than anything. It's the only thing that united them when they got together. They were otherwise so divided. What united them was this common opposition to this force of the West, to this force of democracy, to this force of modernity, to this force of that would have demanded coexistence with the Jews. They couldn't accept that. So what I mean by attack is not answering to their charges, but it's making that basic demand. You owe us, you owe the world, and you owe yourselves, you owe your people, something which you have denied for now three quarters of a century. And it's time to stop as finally you do see Arab leaders beginning to realize that coexistence is the key that, that if they want to be modern, if they want to begin the road to democracy, if they want to begin the road, the first thing they have to do is to stop this and to accept the presence of Israel. The fact, why not make use of it? That is what coexistence does. Yes, there's some competition in it, but mostly there's cooperation in it, right? So you can get much farther that, that way. But you see how hard that is for us? Mm -hmm. Because it's it's just hard. Juicy. Why why is it so hard? Well, because you want we want to get on with life. You know, you know, you see after the war, yes, there were some revenge groups that wanted to go back into Germany and so forth. But Jewish people mostly I lost five years of my life 
You want me to lose more of it in trying to revenge somebody? No, I want to get on with my life. And Israel is so forward-looking. Do I care about these people around me, their pathology? You want me to care about that? Let them deal with their mishigas, right? I'm going to get on with things. So it's, there's, there's something very healthy, <laughs> right? There is something very healthy about wanting only to perfect yourself, only to improve yourself and not to waste time on aggressing against others. But I'm saying this is not aggression against others. The first thing we have to demand is that they cannot compromise on that principle of coexistence, that they owe to the world. They cannot deny the legitimacy of another people, especially given the history of, of, Sem of Semitic peoples and knowing that how many Jews lived in their midst for so long? I mean, they know better than anyone else what the Jewish people is. How dare they? How dare they have, have, have resisted this for so long? And then, you know, built on it as if, as if the, you know, the, the presence of Israel were the problem of the Palestinians. I mean, it is, it is extremely damaging and corrupting to them primarily, I would say. I'm moving on to American Jews. A quote from uh, Saul Bellow, who I know you are personal friends with. I read a recent article that you wrote about your relationship with him. I loved him very much. And his, uh, his final days. In uh, Humboldt's Gift, he wrote that the Jews who moved to America just needed a good night's sleep. They got a good night's sleep. Did they ever wake up from it? Well, this is a good question. You know, you can no longer talk about the Jews of America collectively in that respect anymore. Because um, as you can see, their Jews have gone in two, in, in, in many, but in basically in different directions. The Jews who value their Judaism, put it foremost, you know, when you ask them, what are you? <laughs> you know, what would you answer? You know, what is the first thing that comes to mind? Well, do you say I'm an American? Okay, fine. But then you say I'm a Jew, or how many things come before that, you see? So for some Jews in America, many things come before that. Were they asleep? Well, in a way, as Jews, you know, they needed a good night's rest. But then many Jews, to answer your point, have come awake. And you've got to see that. I mean, there are new organizations founded every day by people who are so energetic. I've been for years associated with a a, an organization here called the Committee for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting in America. It does what uh, memory does, you know, the Middle mm -hmm. East. Mm -hmm. They monitor things. This is so painstaking. You have to monitor every single lie that is told about Israel, every single misrepresentation and so forth. And they do this and they bring it to people's attention. But there are so many other uh, things. Um, you know, there, there's never been an organization as strong as APAC, whatever you may think about it. It's been extremely effective and it tries to find ways of being effective because America's a free society. Anybody can try to, you know, win public opinion. So there are more in these. For example, the, the universities were doing very bad. But now you have several organizations of professors. <laughs> you know, there are not enough of them, of course, but there is a Scholars for Peace in the Middle East. There is an alternative Middle East studies organization that was built. 
there are many organizations and, and many forces really in journalism, in the academy, um, certainly within the Jewish community that are really, really very, very hard to do whatever they can to change public opinion, to influence public opinion. But even these organizations, which use legal measures, uh, they're becoming more adept at doing this. But the other side is becoming actually much more ferocious. So the work gets to be more difficult. I want to ask about the Iran deal. How is it that intelligent, educated people, I'm talking about in the Biden administration, and whatever criticisms people have about the current administration, they are intelligent, educated people. How can they not see that Iran is pulling the wool over their eyes? I, I don't know. As an Israeli, I don't understand it. Well, they it's not that they don't see it. I mean, you know, we, we used to have coffee cups that said denial is not a river in Egypt. Denial is it's very, you know, play on words. Right, denial right. Is a river in Egypt. Right. People don't want to cope with what they would have to do if they acknowledge certain difficulties. And there are people who really don't want America to be involved in anything. These are old arguments between how people understand that you deal with aggression that is directed against you. Do you wait for the last minute, as the United States did with Pearl Harbor? Do you just wait until it's the Seventh hour, unless until the attacks finally come and convince that you have no alternative? Or do you anticipate? Well, Israel, unfortunately, has many fewer choices than America. But even in Israel, you have some people who don't want to be realists. Luckily, the majority of the country is now much more realistic politically. And by realism, I mean simply what you said, simply acknowledging. What seems to be obvious, uh-huh. well, you know, this is um, in my in a previous book that I wrote about humor. Um, I quote something that a uh, an Israeli whose family had come from Germany once told me that um, in, in the German Jews used to say the pessimists went to Israel, the optimists went to Auschwitz. Oy vey, oy vey. <laughs> my God. It's very dark, but you understand. It's very, very sharp, very sharp. They said it about themselves, about their German Jews, right? Mm -hmm. This is it. You know, some people want to be optimists. (laughs) What can I tell you? Speaking of that, American Jews criticize Israel for using their power. And Israeli Jews think that American Jews are naive. How do you bridge the gap between the two? Well, look, I I don't, I don't, there's no simple answer, but there is there is a great difference, and I think that it's more for Israelis to never to lose their moral self-confidence. That is to say, the hardest thing is if people are always accusing you, if people are always demanding of you, and if you are inclined anyway to hold yourself accountable. It's very easy to slip into the idea of saying, I did something wrong. Or surely I can do something to improve the situation. It's very easy for Israelis, for Jews in general, to take on the blame for things. Firstly, it makes you, it empowers you because the minute I think I can be the solution to a problem, it makes me feel a little bit it means I can change it. 
I can change it. Exactly. So there are things that one that can be changed. But there are things, again, that you have to make demands on others to change. And I use this phrase. It's very important to me, moral self-confidence, that you should never, ever lose the idea of knowing how right you are. Usually knowing how right you are in your strategies as well, right? Not falling prey to this idea of of self-criticism when it's not appropriate. There's nothing more about taking on the guilt for somebody else's crime. In fact, it's very immoral to take on the responsibility for somebody else's crime, right? So this is something that we have to learn. And I think that American Jews have to learn it in their context. And of course, they have to do everything in their power to protect you know, the, the reputation of Israel, make demands that I'm talking about. Got it. What did Yiddish writers in Europe have that American Jewish writers don't? Well, uh, you know, that question relates to the whole cultural life that I lead, you know, that uh, it, 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 there's a whole world of answers there, of course. So pick one. Well, I'll tell you what they had was more Jews spoke Yiddish before the Second World War than have ever spoken a Jewish language at any time in history. How many Jews was that? Well, you have about 9 million, 10 million Jews who know Yiddish and who speak Yiddish and who read Yiddish and who use Yiddish. Well, what they had was this Jewish language and this Jewish culture that went back hundreds of years. And um, that's what they what they drew on. And, you know, what American Jewish writers have is don't have the language, for one thing. That's a lot. I mean, yeah. they have a great deal else, but they, they, they don't have the language. So they have to create equivalences and ways of dealing. Now, there are many Jewish writers who have really written brilliantly in other languages, in, in German and in Russian and in Polish. And, you know, Jewish people is very adept at writing in other languages. But still, you can see that it's not the same. I daven in a Yiddish-speaking shul. Do you? A Hasidic Yiddish-speaking shul, basically a Me'asherim shul. Uh-huh. And they have to translate everything for me into Hebrew, because I don't know Yiddish. But I, I, I've been there for 25 years now, and I know just from what I picked up from them that so much Judaism and culture is built into the Yiddish language, that even if you're a completely secular Jew and you speak Yiddish, you have so much Judaism kind of breastfed to you through the language. Absolutely. Absolutely. My, my, my late teacher, Max Weinreich, wrote a the history of the Yiddish language in which he shows, he doesn't have to say it, he shows to extent the Yiddish language is the repository of Judaism, hmm. a rich repository too, very rich, as you, exactly as you say. I want to ask a question about Chabad on campus. Okay. We're getting towards the end. Okay. <laughs> this is the last three questions. So Chabad started off as a movement spreading Hasidus to other religious Jews, and eventually it became a movement that, when they, when they moved to America in the 1940s, had to reach out to Jews that were not so connected to Judaism, which is more or less what they're doing today. And Chabad came on campus and competes with Hillel, which is a very strong, established organization. What role does Chabad play on the college campus? Well, Chabad became very precious to me on the college campus where I taught for 21 years. I was quite 
suspicious of it at first because I did think that it came on to challenge Hillel. That was not it at all. And the difference between them is very profound. I thought about it a lot and I came up with this differentiation. See, Hillel is at a tremendous disadvantage, not that it has to be, but the way it's defined itself. It says, anybody who says he's a Jew can come in and I have to serve them in some way who they are. So, okay, I have Orthodox Jews. I have to have an Orthodox minion. I have conservative Jews and reformed Jews and and this kind of Jews and that kind of Jews. I have to serve them. Okay. Then come Jews and they say, listen, I don't don't like Israel. (laughs) You know, I'm a Jew, a progressive Jew in quotation marks. And Hillel says, we are a big umbrella. Do I have to take these people? See, it doesn't. It doesn't even know where it can stop. Chabad is so different. Hmm. Chabad is every Jewish family. It opens its doors. It's come on Friday night, come to holidays. They never ask who you are, what you are. But Chabad is Chabad. The rabbi and the rebbitzin and their children and what they create is totally who they are. They never, never complain pretend to be anything else. They say, you can be anything you want. You come into our house to see who we are. Be part of this thing. You see how different that is? It's it's so different, and it is so healing to come into a Chabad house. There's something so freeing about it, because it, nobody's asking anything of you very much. You know, they're not asking anything of you. But it's so wonderful. You see what a Shabbat is. You see what a family is. You see what, out. you know, you, you, you just experience something real, not somebody who's trying to say, oh, what can I be for you today? What can I be for you today? And who can never tear himself in enough pieces, you see, to satisfy everyone. Hmm. It's, it, it, I mean, it's, it's just amazing the difference between these two. Just the, 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 just the um, I would say, the feeling. Uh, the atmosphere that uh, that that Chabad can radiate because of its strength. So I wasn't planning on asking you this last question. I mean, second to last question, but I just thought of it this morning. According to Wikipedia, you're 85 years old. I don't know if it's true or not. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I'm very happy it's true. Baruch right? Hashem, you should continue to be healthy. Bezat Hashem. So if you were able to go back and give your younger self some advice what advice would you tell yourself? Oh, I I would never I would never do that. I would never do that. I'm just very glad not to be my younger self anymore. I'm, I'm very grateful for the last adventure of my life, which is old age, uh, which is quite an adventure. Uh, so far, so good. <laughs> so I pray that it continues in this vein. But I would never. You see, I never look back as as a person. I don't. One of my students once <laughs> said to me, uh, Professor Weiss, you don't only use sentimentality as a bad word. You use sentiment as a bad word, <laughs> <laughs> which is a little harsh. I don't think it's quite true. But what he meant was that kind of sentiment, you know, nostalgia, not for me. Okay. That's a good piece of advice as well. Okay. Okay. So the last question. This is the question that I ask all the guests on the podcast. If you had a giant billboard 
<laughs> millions of Jews would stop for a few seconds to read whatever your message you're going to put on the billboard. What message would you put on your billboard? Uh, I'm, I'm afraid I may disappoint you, but the only thing that comes to mind is, you know, one of my favorite books of all time is Sholem Aleichem's Stories of Tevye, the Dairyman, not not the Fiddler on the Roof adaptation, but the text itself and the text in Yiddish. And you know how Sholem Aleichem ends this very tragic work when it tells Mr. Sholem Aleichem as they part for the very last time, he asks him, he says, and please don't forget to tell the Jewish people everywhere that their old God, their old Jewish God lives. So I would say, old Jewish God lives. <laughs> thank you very much, Ruth. You're very welcome. I thank you. Thank you for having me on. And you know, you, it took a year and a half until I got you on the podcast here, and I really appreciate well, you following through and for your Thank time. You. Thank As they you. say in the shul, I, I daven in gesund und frisch. Thank you very much. That was the legendary Ruth Weiss. What an honor and a privilege to have a conversation with her. Thank you to her and thank you to you, my listeners. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you haven't heard the other episodes, please go back and listen to them. Every single one of them is really a fascinating conversation. And if you don't know yet about my other podcast, The Hasidic Story Project, you're in for a real treat because this podcast is taking off like wildfire with thousands of people around the world listening to every episode. Please take a look. You can find it either by searching for my name, Barack Holman, B-A-R-A-K-H-U-L-L-M-A-N, or wherever you listen to podcasts, search for The Hasidic Story Project. Thank you so much for listening. There are many more episodes to come, Be'ezrat Hashem, and I look forward to sharing our next conversation together.